Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Yael Grushka Kakane, who is a professor of business administration, the Altuck Steislinger Foundation Bicentennial Chair in Business Administration, and the Senior Associate Dean for Professional Degree Programs at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. She also holds an appointment as the co-director of the Collaboratory of the Advancement of Business and Data Science at EVA School of Data Science. Professor Gushka Kakane's research and teaching focuses on data science, forecasting, project management, and behavioral decision-making. Her research is published in numerous academic and professional journals, and she's a regular speaker at international conferences. She's an award-winning teacher, winning numerous teaching awards at Darden and EVA at large. In this podcast, Professor Grushka Kakane will talk with us about behavioral decision-making. So thank you, Professor, for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me in for that very, very well-stated introduction. That was a mouthful. I apologize. <laughs> a lot of names and titles. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I wanted, to, I wanted to get it all down. So You did a great. So yes, thank you. So first, what is behavioral decision-making and how does it affect organizations? Uh, great question. So um, the definition varies, of course, and depends who you ask, which is behavioral in and itself. But behavioral decision making takes into account the human mind, if you will, our, our co- cognitive and, and rational kind of thinking. It allows us to accept that decision making is made at various levels. And there could be some rational sense for how we should be making decisions, but in practice, we may not actually make decisions in that way. And so it's this notion that in reality, there are many different things that might affect how we make decisions, and we can't always anticipate the behavior because of some kind of predictive normative model. Um, A classic example is to think that we will always want more money than less, Um, So if we're given various um, options, raffles, um, different deals to to engage in, we will always choose the deal that gives us on average more money. But in reality, it depends on the various outcomes and the risk that is involved. And so even though on average you might make good money, you might reject a a certain deal because you don't want to take the risk of a loss. And so... In reality, people behaviorally walk away from deals because they're either intimidated, scared, averse to certain risks or losses, and therefore they will behave different than maybe on paper they should. Um, The theory has evolved a lot. The theory has expanded and it's uh, an industry, uh, you know, an academic field of its own. Uh, Nobel Prize winners, at least in the last few years, there have been a few that this is their focus. How do people actually make decisions um, in in reality? And again, just to cite a few examples, you may have heard of the nudge movement or the nudge uh, uh, theory. Uh, Dick Thaler won the Nobel Prize uh, just a few years ago, and he has a book called Nudge. Um, But it's not only him. It's a whole uh, field where individuals say, okay, what changes can I make that might not seem related, but in fact do have a big difference to how people make decisions. Um, so it's it's everywhere. And so this goes to your second question, why do why should companies and our alumni care about this? 
in an organization, if, uh, whether you're in the public sector, the private sector, um, um, both in our personal lives, but definitely in our professional lives, we need to be thinking about not only how we would like individuals to make decisions, but also how they actually do make choices. And then what can we do to influence them? So defaults on questionnaires, um, framing of signs and sales and deals, um, even within a company, how you reward employees and motivate them to work. Every single um, example of the, that I just mentioned has some behavioral component to it, takes into account how it behaviorally people make decisions. Um, and so that that's why we should care. And we have people making weird decision-making all the time. So that makes sense. All the time. This could be small <laughs> daily decisions. And you see how study has evolved in daily decisions, like water that we, you know, how much plastic do we consume? Water do we utilize? Even how do we flush the toilet? Like every single part of our choice, every single choice that we make along the way is influenced by individuals recognizing that we have certain behavioral tendencies and then catering or adjusting those behavioral tendencies uh, based on different prompts that they they can design around it. Um, and so it, and that so behavioral decision making affects daily decision for sure. But of course, it affects broader, bigger decisions that we make maybe once in a lifetime, like organ donation and, and so on. And so this applies to both large and small decisions um, that we make um, all you know, around us in various contexts. Interesting. So how does, how do you conduct this kind of research in the field of behavioral decision-making? Well, I think one of the most common ways that have has definitely uh, allowed us to establish the field was, is lab experiments. So you get individuals in, in, in a lab and you test various conditions and you change various features and you make one property more salient than another and you control for it. Um, and then you ex examine, try, trying to come up with a cause and effect. Okay, if I make certain changes, what behavioral changes do I see? Um, surveys, questionnaires, and the like. A lot of the initial work in the 60s and 70s was done with primarily with undergraduate students in the lab, in class, uh, where professors found a natural, um, a la you know, natural place to experiment with their ideas. It's evolved for sure. And there's a deeper appreciation for maybe running a lab experiment where you can be very careful and, and you can distill an environment and control externalities to the maximum, but then going out to the field and examining these certain phenomenon out in the field with actual decision makers when you're not controlling all the other factors at the same time. So we see more and more um, multiple approaches, field experiments together with lab experiments. Um, and if I have, if I were to go back a little bit, the, right now where the field is at is that we can actually sit down and start start to construct descriptive models. So you can design a model, you can write it out, even mathematically, that tries to account for behavioral tendencies. And then you can go out and test, try to estimate a parameter. If I put a, for instance, if I, I do a lot in the field of forecasting, um, so we know behaviorally that forecasters, um, whether professional or not professional, tend to be overconfident, meaning we think that we know what's going to happen, even though we're probably not, um, we shouldn't be that confident with our with our view of the future. 
But now when I design a model for thinking about forecasts, I can add an overconfidence parameter to my model. Mm -hmm. So we can start incorporating the behavioral tendencies in, even in theoretical models. But of course, we have to go out to the field to estimate what, how big is that factor. Um, so you see people writing it on paper, building it into models, and then going out to, to collect data and testing it um, in the field. Interesting. So, so that's an example of some of the key insights um, from the research. But can you expand on some of the other key insights that you've found in your research? Um, overconfidence, definitely. I'm not the first. I wasn't, uh, and I um, the first to study overconfidence. There are very uh, academics around the world, um, but it's definitely one of the bigger. Um, or the most impactful findings from my perspective. Mm -hmm. um, we are overconfident in many different ways. Um, uh, and sometimes that can yield positive outcomes. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a critique or a negative thing. Um, but we're overconfident about our capabilities. We're overconfident about um, our, cap our ability to predict some uncertainty about the future. We're overconfident in the sense that we don't think about tails often enough. We like to not think about tails um, in terms of e extreme events happening. So we think about uh, central tendencies. And so in that sense, we typically are too narrow in how we think about our future. We don't imagine futures that can be wide and varied and between you know, the crisis over a decade ago, the financial crisis over a decade ago that now is being provoked in our memory and um, the the COVID pandemic, I think that there is more of an appreciation, even at a very intuitive level to any lame person who've, who's lived through the past couple of decades, that those tales matter. If we thought more proactively about the extremes, we would potentially be more ready for financial crises. If we thought more about extremes, we would potentially be ready both mentally and otherwise for um, I, you know times like the pandemic, but we don't um, for various reasons. We can talk about that too. Um, so the overconfidence idea is a, is a big one um, and it, it really has a lot of effect on, on choices that get made in, the comp in companies and outside of companies. And that's probably one of the biggest findings from the field. Um, overconfidence related a little bit is framing. <clears throat> so we know that if I present you with two options, even though the options may be the same, I can affect how you choose based on how I describe those options. Again, it sounds maybe trivial. Every parent knows that in order to get your child to do what you want them to do, you probably have to be a little bit sophisticated in how you frame the options. Um, and so maybe we learn it from first principles that way. But in terms of um, uh, business perspective and 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 more financial or e economic decisions, it's been interesting to see the literature explore just how how sensitive we are to framing uh, in our in our choices. And you would think that big budgets or big choices related to product launches or project selection or um, what have you, or even who to hire, should not be sensitive to how I frame my situation or how I frame the options, and yet it really is sensitive to that. So that's another huge um, factor. There's been a lot, um, and I can go on and on because there's it's such a rich field, but there's been a lot recently around um, habits and habit formation and how do you change habits? What kind of uh, triggers, what kind of framing, what kind of different manipulations you can do to change or enforce habits 
uh, habits are sometimes great and you want to continue doing them or, or start and habits sometimes you want to break. And so there's been a lot of work on that. Um, and then finally, I've done a little bit of work, although it's not been my main line of work, um, related to just the perception of time. So if you think about how we think about money that we will get in the future or savings that we will need for the future, um, it is interesting that sometimes our mind plays tricks on us in terms of our anticipation. And we can have a preference right now for something, you know, two deals in the future. As we get closer, we might flip. <clears throat> and so this notion of of changing preferences over time and as we get closer, certain um, values seem different to us is an interesting one because again, you may know this intuitively as you get ready in the morning, time goes by faster. As you are you know, not interested, time goes slower. As you are approaching something exciting, time really stops and stands still. So there, we know this on, on various levels. And yet, how does that affect the choices that we make um, is not always something that we, we think about um, and debate. Great. Um, and so I see how it's important for organizations and companies to really think about this as they structure different things in their work. So what specific projects are you working on related to behavioral decision making? I'm just wrapping up one um, that is near and dear to my heart because it ties into a different um, or another line of research that I do. Um, I do a lot of work on project planning and project management. And in project planning um, and in the execution of project, there are many different behavioral tendencies that affect how projects get executed. Um, so there's been research showing that there's something called the planning fallacy um, where uh, we're just bad at planning. We are notoriously, we overpromise and we have to deliver. And that's even for our, in, in, to ourselves. We, we think that we'll get something done faster than we do, or we think that we'll spend less than we do. And, and it ends up taking us longer and we spend more. And I don't want to trigger anything where everybody, but I assume that people are already smiling saying, oh, yes, this sounds like my, you know, packing for my trip or my, you know, my kitchen renovation or, 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 or potentially a project that I've been involved in at work. And so that's one aspect of projects that has been um, that I've been engaged in. How do we help individuals combat the planning fallacy? But specifically, I've just finished a paper with a colleague here at Darden um, and another colleague at the University of Utah, where we think about how choices around reviews. So if you're running a project, a big project in your organization, and many companies do, it's a you know trillion, trillion dollar um, uh, industry, the, the project side of things, like there's so many companies that actually rely on projects to be executed for their business. If you're running a project, you set certain points in time or certain points in the work where you review, you check in and see how's the project going? Are we making progress? Seems trivial, um, but it turns out that how you phrase those review points, how you choose, whether it's time or whether it's a based on the stage of the work or based on the spending of the, your, your budget, those choices are actually impactful. They're impactful on what you decide to do moving forward. Behavioral dis, uh, project leaders, so project leaders that have some kind of effect of behavioral decision-making, they care. They feel differently. They're moved differently if they start to see deviations from their plan. Ooh, I'm running late or I'm running behind or I've spent too much. 
the reaction that a behavioral project leader would take is almost exaggerated. So uh, they will almost, you know, either cut back too much or, ta- or or move forward too much. They they're just making these adjustments that are not always um, uh, rational or optimal in terms of the finances uh, for the project because they're affected not only by where they're at but where they thought they were going to be. And that notion that I have some memory, that I have some kind of reference point, that I have something that is anchoring me and affecting how I'm making choices and I over or underreact because of it, that's a behavioral tendency. And that's what we show in that in that paper. Um, and it's important because there's a lot of theories and training that gets done around how you should report progress in, in projects. And yet the implication is not only fully, not always fully understood. And so it has really practical implications for a whole field of, of research. Interesting. So, and finally, where do you see the future of the field and, and then what's next for you? Um, so I think it's, a, it's an interesting field because it's hard for theories to stick. It takes a while for theories to solidify. And that's fine. I mean... In our lifetime, it's hard to to come to terms with it sometimes because we want every everything to be wrapped up in a bow within a generation. But we know from academia that sometimes it takes multiple generations of academics until ideas get solidified and really um, understood and vetted properly. And so you'll see certain phenomenon being published about, and then two weeks later, there'll be a paper that totally, uh, you know, refutes those or or shows counter evidence. And so um, there's a little bit of a ping pong uh, going on between the various academics in the field, which is natural and healthy in many ways, because we want to scrutinize these ideas from multiple perspectives. Um, I do think that we have become more demanding in what we would like to see. So there is a big effort, and actually that is pretty institutionalized these days, around replicability. So it used to be that you could publish a paper about certain phenomenon based on 200 students in the lab, and you would be fine. These days, you not only that one study is probably not enough, but you need seven or eight studies to prove everything um, that you want to show, there'll also be a whole crew of individuals waiting to replicate and try and test it in other settings. And that's a community. The community has come together trying to build more robust findings. Um, And so these days you really are held to a high standard in terms of demonstrating that the effects are are there. Um, And that's true for almost every kind, kind of behavioral work out there. And so that's a big trend that I'm seeing, which would, which means that we will require more testing, more experimentation and more applicability directly to the setting. So me testing something with a couple of my students in the lab, it's going to be harder for me to convince the world or the world of academics that that I've talked to, or even the world of business leaders, that it matters to them. And so we're seeing a lot more collaboration. We're seeing academics working side by side with the the LinkedIn, the Amazons of the world, the uh, you know the the tech companies to do a lot of this maybe online because we now we're in the zone where we care about behavior of participants online. Um, so there's a lot more collaboration between companies, between industry and academia. It's been there, but it's definitely picked up and it's become much more acceptable. And that's a good thing in my book. Um, at Darden, we care a lot about the world of practical affairs and, and actual business leaders. We want to hear from them and for them to buy into it and understand the need for this work uh, validates it um, even further. Um, I think that 
we saw at least you know about a decade ago a big movement on in the more um in the leadership in the public sector in, in various governments around the world that um they paused and they listened to to this line of work and they embraced it at the at the policymaker level um which also has been encouraging because we want to help build healthier societies. So to the degree that we can use some of these tools to craft, um, you know, better cities and better um, um, physical activity habits uh, of individuals, and we can tie in um, healthcare policies to uh, things that we think would be useful for individuals and for 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 society for various societies. Um, I think that that would be good. And then we're talking about a bigger effect long term. We're talking about, you know, a big shift in just the general population. Um, and I think that that ultimately is probably where we would like to see things going, um, not only on the margin affecting whether or not, you know, a marketer, I shouldn't, you know, always make marketers to be the evil, but a marketer can exploit or not a consumer, which is one aspect of it. But it's not just about that. We want to actually maybe think about the marketer helping a consumer, a marketer helping a certain individual save money when they can or make smarter choices for themselves. So I think that there's a little bit more of a conscientious effort to use behavioral decision making in a positive manner um, and not to be seen, you know, as as being exploiting uh, the findings in any way. Um, and for me, that's a good direction. And personally, I hope to continue in what I'm doing in terms of uh, enriching the conversation around project plan and project management. Um, projects are not going away. I think the tools that, um, or the framing that I have can really help organizations, whether they're wondering how to get the most out of AI and machine learning, or whether they're talking about event planning and um, you know, and, and just more traditional construction project planning, I think that there's still a lot of uh, room for improvement. There's a huge effort around infrastructure and a lot of money spent um, in, in some of those efforts. And so there, all of that is primed for improvement in terms of tightening things up, getting more, um, you know, helping individuals recognize their own behavioral tendencies. And then when they're put in situations where they need to make choices, making better choices um, overall. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor, for sharing all of this information about behavioral decision-making. I'm sure that all of us listening have thought about ways that we need to think about this and um, do some of our research ourselves into how we might make some better decisions personally and professionally. So I really appreciate it. And and, and so My thank pleasure. you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and families. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope uh, I hope people find it useful. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on Spotify in the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs. <laughs>